We are passionate as a local church. We want to see the gospel proclaimed and not just enjoyed and applied. We want to make sure that we're taking the gospel out for the glory of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear that everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the question that still remains is, well, how can they call upon the name of the Lord if they've not believed in him? And how can they believe in him if they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone going? Well, that's where we all fit in in the story, isn't it? We are the proclaimers. We are the people on mission for the Lord. And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the power of the gospel, the gospel's reach and charge and opportunity before the Lord. And then just last week, I thought Riley did an outstanding job of helping us see the importance of contextualization. We can't be a people that are just putting in truth bombs as if that's what we do. If your evangelism is primarily on Facebook, I'm not convinced that's what Jesus would be doing. You know, he doesn't just deliver bombs from afar and then, oh, maybe somebody will see it and respond. I've never heard of that happening ever anywhere in the world. No, we're called by God to take the gospel and then befriend people really get to know them and love them and do the hard yards with them for the glory of the Lord and then find ways of bringing the gospel to bear on their lives and be communicated in their lives. We are called, as Riley helped us see last week, to be all things to all people so that by all means we may win some. It's so challenging, isn't it? Well, this week, to encourage us, I want to look at the sovereignty of God in mission. So if you want a title, I've called this message Sovereignty and the adventure of mission. And I believe this challenge of sovereignty, when we see it in our lives, and when we see it in the day-to-day of our lives, it can have single-handedly a dramatic effect on the way we pursue mission in our lives. When your eyes are open to this reality, it changes everything. So we're going to read together Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through to chapter 16, verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. 
And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so powerful. And so, Lord, it is a joy and a privilege and a thrill to once again sit under it today. Lord, I do pray that these words wouldn't just be some old-fashioned story to us but they would come alive in our hands today. They would come alive in our minds and in our hearts and we would realize these words speak to us. They have something to say to us. And may our lives be encouraged and built up as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in our world and in our communities, The idea and concept of luck is such an assumed and living reality, isn't it? You hear the word luck all the time. And you hear the phrase, that was lucky. Quite often, do you not? And so somebody goes for a house and they want to get a new rental and one just happens to come up at exactly the right place. And so you see see them and you see the house and your instant response is, that was so lucky. Or a car accident. Somebody could have been in a serious accident, but just at the right time, the car swerved out the way and you managed to avoid them. And the initial thing that can come out of people's minds is, man, that was so lucky. You were so lucky. Or the job opportunity. The job opportunity that somebody's been waiting for for ages and it would just appear they happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right boss. They were just so lucky when they got it. You know, we even have an advert on our television that even closes with, you're lucky, you're with Amy. We drink lady luck, karma, good fortune. I mean, I even go out to the kids' ministries often before they even start, and my my response is this, good luck. I mean, that's the way I feel about what they're about to do. Luck is a normal word to use in our society and in our communities, and yet... In the Bible, the idea and concept of luck simply does not exist at all. It never talks about luck in the Bible. What it talks about in the Bible is the sovereign providential hand of God who guides all things for his glory. The Bible doesn't speak of luck. It speaks of God's sovereignty. 
And so in Ephesians 1, verse 11, for example, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, listen, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did you get that? All things. All things are worked according to the counsel of his will. Jesus reigns and all things now fit and sit under his authority. Proverbs 16 verse 33. It says, The lot is cast into the lap, but his very decision is from the Lord. I love that. It's good to vote. It's important to vote. That's what it means to cast lots. But it's every decision is ultimately from the Lord. It's the Lord who guides all things. You like playing games, spinning the dice? Enjoy yourself. You're never lucky. It's the sovereign hand of God. Proverbs 16.33. Matthew 10, verse 29 to 31. Jesus himself says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many Sparrows. Jesus wants to talk about even the smallest birds of the sky and help us see, listen, even those are ultimately sovereignly ordained to move by the Lord. Not two of them can fall from the sky without it being his will. The Bible doesn't speak of lady luck at all. It speaks of the sovereignty of God a ton. And there are times then when in his sovereignty, no doubt his hand is hidden. You can't work out what the Lord is up to, but as Brendan prayed before, I think so wonderfully, even though his hand may be hidden, his heart is not. You want to know how the Lord feels about you? Then gaze at Calvary. But then as we gaze at Calvary, we must also understand that one who died on the cross then rose again and now sits in the right hand of the Father from whom and from which position he reigns. Not even a sparrow falls from the sky without it being allowed or ordained by the Lord himself. And what I love about this passage of Scripture in particular is what we learn right here in Acts chapter 15 is that God is sovereign in our missions as well. The mission that you've been sent on by the Lord to go and make disciples of all nations, as we are doing that, he is sovereignly ordaining each and every part of the story And when you see that, it is at that point that I think this story then begins to leap off the page to us. It goes from a flat piece of paper to a 3D movie. And so I have two points this morning. The story itself and the story applied. It's not long, it's not complicated, but I trust it will bless you from God's word. And so number one, the story itself. Before we can even think about how to apply this to our lives, we must walk with Paul and see what God did with him. And listen, as this story begins in chapter 15, verse 36, it's really important to understand that as Paul sits in Antioch at this point, he has got it all worked out. In his mind, he is sweet. You see, for the last year, Paul has been back in Antioch, and for the last year he's been there because he had just returned with his colleague Barnabas from his first missionary trip. He and Barnabas have been missing for 18 months. It is a trip that took them over 2,500 kilometers. They'd gone to Cyprus, they'd gone to Galatia, they'd gone to Syria, they'd gone gone into Cilicia. 
They had gone for 18 months. They were sharing the gospel with people. They were planting churches. They were establishing leadership teams in those churches. It was a sweet time. But a year ago, they came back to Antioch. During that time in Antioch, they'd both made their way to Jerusalem. You know, when when the Gentiles started getting saved, it was great. But it caused a few challenges as well because people are like, hey, if they're going to be like a follower of Jesus, shouldn't they get like, shouldn't everybody get circumcised? And what about the feasts? And what about the festivals? It started to raise a lot of questions as what is the gospel and what is Jewish? And so they discussed this together as an apostolic team to work out what to do. So Paul had been involved in that and they were all super clear what they were going to be saying going forward. It seemed good to them and to the Lord. And as Paul then sits back in Antioch, he's decided, listen, Barnabas, me and you, We need to get back out there. Let's go back to the churches that we saw on our first trip. Let's strengthen them. Let's encourage them. And so as far as Paul's concerned, he's got it all worked out. Look at verse 36. And after some days, actually meaning the last year, after some 365 days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Simple. Boom. Easy. Not so much. Because as soon as he says these words, that's where this story of the unexpected really starts to take on a life of its own. Paul has got it all worked out. But God's going to do something else. Right at the start then, we see an unexpected personnel change. Look with me at verse 37 to 40. It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. You see, for whatever reason, Paul did not want to take (coughs) Mark it's clear in the first missionary trip, Mark was there. It's clear as well as time went on, you know, be encouraged about him. He actually wrote a gospel, so it must have got there in the end. But at this point in time, Paul's like, listen, I ain't taking him again. There's no way. And he explains why. It's because he was withdrawn. Now, he didn't explain why he's withdrawn. I mean, maybe Mark was fearful, and so he didn't want to share things in the way that Paul needed him to. Maybe he was sick. And so like, hey, Mark, we've got to go. And he could never get out of bed. Only knows. Maybe he loved comfort. And so he just didn't look like he was going to be cut out for the missionary life. We don't know the reason why, but what we do know is whilst Paul was saying definitely not, Barnabas was saying definitely yes. And they could not agree on this mission strategy. And so sadly, in this moment, they had to agree to disagree. They fell into sharp disagreement and they separated. You know, one commentator says, at that moment, there were likely no two unhappier brothers in all of Antioch. I think that's so true. Paul and Barnabas have been so close, but at this point in time, it became apparent, we're going to be splitting up from here. We have different vision with different realities of what we want to do from here. You know, what's incredible to me, though, is you trace back the story is that although the Lord has not caused this sharp disagreement between the two of them, he is nonetheless going to use it. Because in grace and mercy in this moment, one apostolic team becomes two. The Lord is now going to take these groups to two different places. 
the efforts are double. Was the Lord the cause of the disagreement? No. But is he going to use it? Yes. Barnabas then, along with Mark, sail off to Cyprus. Paul, now joined by Silas, sail off to Syria and Cilicia and Lystra and Derbe. And as you retrace the story afresh, you realize, again, the sovereign hand of God is magnificent. In Paul's choice of Silas, he, he picks quite the man. This is a man commended by the council. He's a Roman citizen. He's a prophet. He spoke Greek, which is going to come in pretty handy given where the Lord is going to unexpectedly take these guys on this trip. And then when they get to Derby, they meet a young man by the name of Timothy. A young man who's half Jewish and half Greek. He was most likely saved on Paul's first missionary journey. But he has grown so much in the faith and wants to give his life to serving Jesus. Paul decides, well, listen, why don't you come as well? And that young man would be a young man that Paul says later on in years, Timothy, I have no one like you. The Lord uses him mightily. God did not cause this disagreement to take place, but God would use it. This is so not what Paul had planned as he was in Antioch. When he's in Antioch, it's going to be sweet. Me and Barnabas hanging out again, seeing the brothers. It's going to be awesome. Boom. It isn't going to be even you two going together. An unexpected personnel change that the Lord uses for his glory. And then we have an unexpected destination change. You see, when Paul has finished in Galatia, his plan, was, which was always the plan, was to go south and minister in Asia, which is common day Turkey. But it would appear the Lord has very different plans. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mashiach, they attempted to go to Bith into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mashiach, they went down to Troas. So here's the scene. As Paul has always intended, he wants to go south to Asia, but the Holy Spirit stops him. So he tries to go north to Bithynia, and again the Holy Spirit stops him. Now, I think an important question, unless it's just me that asks it, is what does that look like? <laughs> what do you mean the Holy Spirit stops him? I mean, is the Holy Spirit like jumping out of a tree dressed like Gandalf and then saying, you shall not pass? How does this work? How did he know that he's not meant to go on? Did he like, you know, jump out of a hole, wrestle him to the ground and pin him down? You know, what did this look like? How did Paul know that I am not able to go north or south? See, the Bible isn't clear exactly how he knew. I think most likely, though, or at least as a suggestion, I think most likely the Holy Spirit probably either removed from Paul a peace about their direction, so he felt troubled, realizing, I can't go north, I can't go south, God's not in this. Or maybe it was circumstantial. And maybe through his circumstances, he knew doors were closed. One commentator actually says and talks about how it is uncanny that very shortly after this, it is then that Luke, indeed Dr. Luke, joins them. So maybe there was sickness involved, which really hemmed him in, above and below. He just knew, I can't go those ways, I've got to go this way. The Bible's not clear exactly how God guided them. But the truth is, this is one of the ways that without doubt, God still guides us today, is it not? You go for a job. 
And as far as you're concerned, you have every chance of getting it. You've been trying to get it for ages. The last manager has even put your name forward. This is sweet. It must be the plan of the Lord. And then you don't get it. And you're like, Lord, what's up with that? I prayed for this. I wanted this. It seems obvious. Why is the door closed? Or you go for a house and you really want the house. It's going to suit you perfectly. You're allowed, you know, all your animals there and all your kids there. And it's all going sweet. This is going to be good. It's in the perfect spot for the kingdom of God. And the person just goes, no, nah, no, I'm sorry. We're going to give it to somebody else. You're like, what? Lord, where are you? What are you doing to me? Or you're in a relationship and you're convinced this is the person I'm going to marry. This is so good. But sadly, the other person doesn't feel the same way. And they let you know, no thanks. And your life actually starts to come crashing down somewhat. You see, when these things happen in our lives, it can be so easy for us as Christians to look at God and to sense that he's abandoned us. What are you doing? How come the job didn't work out, the house or the relationship? What are you doing? I thought you loved me. When actually his sovereign and hidden hand is loving you all the time, Closing those doors. It's the way he works. We need to stop wagging our finger at the Lord when things don't work out and instead hit our knees and declare, Lord, I trust you. I don't understand, but I know your heart and I trust you. In the sovereignty and kindness of God, that was Paul's response. Because he very quickly recognized that God is behind this unexpected direction change. Tries to go south, he realizes the Lord is closing that door. Tries to go north, the Lord is closing that door. So he continues to go west, and he ends up then at Troas. Look at me at verse 9. It says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Macedonia? I mean, Macedonia is modern-day Greece. It's Europe. The gospel had never gone to Europe. That was never part of the plan, at least not on this trip. But Paul has a vision from God with a man from Macedonia, a man from Greece, calling him, come over, help us. And Paul instantly understands this is the will of God. And so the very next morning, they set sail. This is a most unexpected destination change. This has not been the plan. But the sovereign guiding hand of the Lord was pushing Paul all along to a place that he never thought he'd be gone. And then comes an unexpected people change. Look at me at verse 11 and 12. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. This is not what Paul had anticipated. He wasn't planning to go to Greece. And yet he knew this was the guiding of the Lord. And so he finds himself in the grand city of Philippi. He goes for the big place, the important place to be. And so Philippi as a city is indeed a profound place. It is steeped in Greek culture and Greek architecture. There is a massive Greek amphitheater right in the middle of Philippi. It's also Roman. 
It's a Roman colony and has been since 168 BC. And so there was a lot of wealth and infrastructure and help to Philippi. Philippi was a major place at the time. And so on the Sabbath, Paul, in a keen desire to share the gospel with people, he wants to find God-fearers. Well, how do you do that in a place where there's no synagogue? Simple. It was always understood by Jewish community and God-fearers that where there's no synagogue, on the Sabbath, you would go outside of the city gate and stand or sit by river. So that's what Paul goes looking for. He goes out the gate, goes along the river. Hello, ladies. Are you here for God? And they are. They are God-fearers. He meets a lady called Lydia. There is a group of God-fearing women sitting by the river. And Paul tells them who he is, and he explains to them, I want to tell you about the greatest news you can ever hear. And he preaches to them about Christ and Him crucified. He preaches to them about the incarnate come of God. You're waiting for a Messiah? I want to let you know He has come and His name is Jesus. And by putting your faith in Him as your Lord and Savior, you can be saved in a moment. You can be forgiven and redeemed. Heaven is your home. And wonderfully and gloriously, as Paul preached that gospel message to them, wonderful things began to happen. Look at me at verse 14 and 15. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Oh, this is a wonderful moment in the history books, my friends. This is the moment where Paul preaches for the first time on European soil. He preaches to this group of ladies, and this group of ladies in a moment through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ get saved. That's illustrated by the fact that they immediately also get baptized. They have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And having done that, they all want to get in the pool. What a happy day this must have been. And she prevails on him in in this moment. Please stay. Stay in Philippi with us. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy agree. They will stay. They will continue, at least for some time, to proclaim the glorious gospel in Philippi. Well, that becomes pretty interesting. The next day, they proclaim the gospel to a group of people, and one of those group of people is a slave girl who's demon-possessed. Well, we know what to do with that. We pray for them so the demons leave, which is what they did. And the demons did leave. And this young slave girl gave her life to Christ. But the owners of the slave girl weren't too keen on that. So they actually kicked up a fuss, and Paul ends up in prison that night. But he's not dismayed. He's praying. He's rejoicing. They're singing praises to the Lord. The Lord breaks into the prison. They are released, but not before the Philippian jailer also gets saved. In this moment, over these few days, the very first church on European soil is born, the church of Philippi. And this would be a church that would remain dear to Paul for the rest of his days, as is evidenced by the letter to the Philippians that we still have in our Bibles. You know, this is a wonderful and unexpected story, is it not? Just a few months earlier, Paul is in Antioch. This is sweet. Me and Barnabas, we go back on the boat, go and visit all the people we've seen before. We can check out the nice restaurants that we went to before. We'll have a lovely time. 
It all changes. He's not going to be going with Barnabas at all. He's going with two other guys. Oh, and the destination? You can visit a few of those churches, but I'm actually going to take you to a different, different place altogether. I'm going to take you to Greece. And then you're going, to a bunch, you're going to preach to a bunch of people that you never imagined preaching in front of. But actually, they're going to become Christians. And churches for the first time in Europe are going to be born. It is a wonderful story of the unexpected. And if we pay attention in our Bibles, what we discover is this just isn't a book of history that just happens to be going, oh, isn't that interesting? It's really interesting. No, it's designed by God to help us see God's sovereign and invisible hand. This wasn't all Paul's choices. This was the Lord's guidance as Paul goes out on mission. And it's when we see that that I think we can then apply this story, which is my second point this morning, the story applied. See, this story is not just here to tell us what happens in history. It does indeed do that. We do indeed see in these verses how the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It's true. But what we also see in these verses is the reality that God is sovereign in our missions as well. God's mission has not changed. God's heart has not changed. Indeed, God has not changed. For yesterday and today and forever, he remains the same. And it's if we let that filter through when we meditate that and think about that as Christians, the two things begin to pop out to us from this text that I think can massively build faith and encouragement into us as we know that we've got to go and tell people about Jesus. The first is this. It's the reality that in the same way that God was personally walking with Paul, he also now personally walks with you. My friends, are you aware of that? You're aware of the call of God on your life to go and make disciples of all nations, but are you aware that Jesus himself is with you? It makes such a profound difference in the way we go about this mission. And it is there, right there in Scripture. In Matthew 28, we're called to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've commanded you. It's a wonderful verse, but that's not a full stop. Because in that moment, Jesus then says, and, I love the word and, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He is screaming from the rooftops, I'm with you. You will never be alone. You will never ever be in an awkward situation where you feel, what can I do? I just feel so alone. If you ever feel that, you rebuke it in Jesus' name because it's not the truth. The truth is I will always be with you to the end of the age. What a happy discovery that is, don't you think? I mean, we just spent months in the book of Colossians, seeing how glorious Jesus is. We saw that Jesus is supreme in personhood, for he is the image of the invisible God. We saw that Jesus is supreme in creation, for from him and through him and to him are all things. He's the one that says to the tides, this far and no further. He's the one that holds the galaxies and sustains the stars so that no one is missing. He's the one that holds the, the water of the earth in the hollow of his hand. He's even supreme in reconciliation. 
He's the one who in a moment can take people from death to life and blindness to sight and deafness to hearing. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and his point in this text is I am with you. Not, not corporately, individually. My friends, are you aware of that? It can be so easy when you are in the office and discussion starts going on, you're like, oh gosh, this is really awkward. To be alone. You're never alone. The lion of the tribe of Judah stands right beside you and his courage in the spirit of Christ is in you. Never alone. It's so easy to find ourselves feeling alone, but those feelings are a lie. Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10. It says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. Isn't that beautiful? King David knew it. He knew, I will never be alone. But as Christians, we would do well to know it as well. Listen, in the same way that Paul was personally walking with God, God now personally walks with you as well. You are never alone in all of life. And that includes your mission. He's always with you to give you the words to say and the courage you need. And the strength to get the words out of your mouth. In the same way that God was with Paul, he's now with us. And secondarily, also equally important, is the reality that in the same way that God was sovereignly guiding Paul, he is also now sovereignly guiding you. See, my friends, as I said at the start, In our world and our communities, the idea of concept of luck is just an assumed reality. Everything's just karma. Everything's good fortune. Everything is lady luck. But the Bible would teach us that there's no such thing as luck. Everything that happens, happens because of the guiding, sovereign hand of the Lord. And just let me pan that down then for you as to what that means in your mission as Christians. Here's what it means. Let's talk for a moment about the people you work with. None of them are an accident before the Lord. God has sovereignly used all things to guide you to be exactly where he wants you. That person that you sit next to at work and maybe even tests you a little bit, God has sovereignly placed them there Next to you. Is it just so, just, just lucky that they happen to have a Christian in the office? I think not. I think that is the sovereign guiding hand of the Lord. What about the community we live in and the house you live in, the street you live in? Just lucky? No. No, sovereignly guided by the hand of God Himself. I want you as my child there. It's so easy for us to think, oh, he probably wants me here for my good. True. 
He wants you there for your good and his glory. There is mission to get done on your streets. There's mission to get done in your communities. Nothing is an accident. He wants you right there for a reason and a time. What about the families you're a part of? For many of you, you have unbelieving spouses, unbelieving kids, unbelieving parents, unbelieving auntie and uncles. Are they just lucky to have a Christian in the family? Just coincidence. I think not. I think the Lord has sovereignly placed you in these families so that the gospel may go forward from you. What about the strangers that we meet? The strangers we meet on the bus or at the park or like on a plane when you're on it for 18 hours and they want to sit next to you and ask, about what do you do for a living for 19 hours? What about the people you play soccer with or you go to school with or you go to college with? Just, just an accident? I think not. I see the sovereign hand of God moving in this book. And I think what we sometimes don't have eyes to see is he still does exactly the same today. Guiding sovereignly his disciples to be at the right place at the right time. And it ain't lucky, it's sovereignty. My friends, God, in the same way he was sovereignly guiding Paul, is also sovereignly guiding you and I. And so I pray, by the time you leave these doors this morning and go out, I pray that you may have eyes to see what the Bible teaches. Nothing is lucky. Everything is providential. You're not just in the right place at the right time. He's sovereignly guiding you to your houses, to your families, to your workplaces, to your colleges for such a time as this so that you may be the light of the gospel in those places. May that encourage us. May that build faith to us. And may we go. And maybe it would be said then of us. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way your word is alive and active. Your word isn't here just to teach us some history lesson, but it's alive to help us see this is you. Oh Lord, I do pray for each and every member of Sovereign Grace Church. Would we have eyes to see this this morning? By the time we sit in our houses today and look out the window, would we realize that people in other houses beside us, they have been sovereignly put there by you. When we go to work and we sit next to an individual, would we be aware this is all part of your sovereign plan that they would come across you? Lord, you do help us to see with your eyes and would you help us to delight in sovereignty and the adventure of this mission? Would we go in faith? Would we go in expectation, understanding? As you guide these people into our lives and us into them, you do it for a purpose. <laughs> so may we go in faith and knowledge that you are good. And would all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.